0: Welcome to
1: Marvel Us
0: Disney. Hello there, this is Jim Hill and you're listening to Marvel Us Disney, a new podcast that we're doing here as part of the Disney Dish Group. This is going to be a different sort of show. You listen to what Len Testa and I have done previously. That's more about Disney and the theme parks, but... Disney these days means a lot of things. Disney means Lucasfilm. Disney means Pixar. And Disney in particular means Marvel. And this is an area I have really wanted to step into for a long time, but needed somebody who was far more knowledgeable about Marvel than I was. And lucky enough, it turns out the gentleman who's been editing the Disney Dish podcast all of this time, one Aaron Adams, is a Marvel encyclopedia with feet. Earlier this summer, while Len and I were out in Indiana doing the Indie Disney meet, afterwards, Aaron and I went out to dinner with Nancy and sat around Skyline Chili and started talking about Marvel. And we had this conversation that I couldn't help but think, that's a podcast. So that's what we're doing today.
1: Aaron, get in here. I am a geek who wears his geek heart on his geek sleeve. I've got a thousand Spider-Man t-shirts and whatnot. I am hardcore a geek. And so when I get to talk to someone else who's passionate about a you know certain geek topic, I latch on to that person and I and I enjoy the time. So I'm looking forward to the show.
0: Let's kind of lay down the parameters of what we're going to try to do with this show. Now, given the title Marvel Us Disney, the Us is myself and Aaron. We're going to be talking about Disney and Marvel, but rather than do all of Marvel history, which you know I mean dates back to the
1: '40s, doesn't it? Well, that would be when they had a different mm-hmm. name, and I. Can't think it was it? It wasn't Image Comics. Okay.
0: Well, again, wh- where we're going to use sort of as a, our baseline for the show is uh, starting in August two thousand nine, which was when the Walt Disney Company announced that they were going to acquire Marvel Entertainment LLC for four billion dollars. By the time they actually finished the deal, wrapped up December thirty first of two thousand nine, it was. Uh, What, 4.3 billion. So, you know, what's 300 million between friends? Right. When you're talking about what Disney has done with Marvel, you have to acknowledge what's come beforehand because often it's not Marvel is constantly reaching back into its history and grabbing story ideas and characters to use for films, for television shows, for theme park attractions. Mm -hmm. I guess to kick off, because we want to keep this current and newsworthy, we'll start the first show with the news that just broke yesterday, which was them tweeting out that photo of the production of Venom. It's not
1: a Marvel movie. That's my first statement. (laughs) Okay. Please explain. It's a Sony movie. And when Marvel made a deal with Sony to incorporate Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that was it. It did not include... The rogue gallery that Spider-Man had, it didn't have any of that. And a few months back, there was an interview with Amy Pascal from Sony and uh, Kevin Feige from Marvel, and they were talking about the upcoming release of Spider-Man Homecoming. But at that time, Amy Pascal was also talking about how they were had plans to do a Venom movie, and now that Spidey's tied into the Marvel Universe, Venom will be too, at which point Kevin Feige turned his head and gave a look that said... I'm sorry, what did you just say? And he didn't want to interrupt her, so he let her talk about how all these new villains are going to be in the Marvel Universe, and Kevin Feige did not say a word to contradict it, but the look on his face said, oh, we're going to have discussions about this real soon. So I honestly don't know if the upcoming Venom movie is really tied to the Marvel Universe in any way shape or form right now
0: well i guess what intrigues me is that if we go back for example to spider-man 3 and when sam raimi was originally beginning development of that after spider-man 2 he had an entirely different set of villains in mind he wanted to do the vulture which of course Mm -hmm. was just now an incredibly memorable well-done villain For Spider-Man Homecoming, the film that Sony just released this past summer.
1: And at the Mm. time, Sony looked at a comic book drawing of the Vulture from like the 70s, which is an old 80-year-old geriatric man completely bald in a green feathered suit. And they looked at Sam Raimi and went, you're Mm. out of your mind. That's not what we're going to do. And so then they pitched him, uh, Venom's very popular. You should do Venom.
0: Well, absolutely. But the gentleman who really sort of ran this down Sam's throat was Avid Arad, who at that time was the chairman, CEO, and founder of Marvel Studios. He was looking at what had just happened with Spider-Man uh, 2, the original Spider-Man movie, the one that came out in 2002, had cost Sony $140 million to make. So the next one comes along, and so they bump the budget to $200 million that's up 30% more in production costs than the, the other film. It ends up making 5% less at the box office, more than a, three quarters of a billion dollars. But as far as Sony's concerned, it's like, well, it made less money and we paid more to make it. And clearly something is wrong. We need to tweak the formula. And to give Rami credit to this day, it's like, look, you know, they were giving me $200 million to play in their sandbox, so... I have to take notes, you know, and if they say you don't want you to use the vulture, we want you to use Venom, you go, yes or no sir, three bags full sir. Uh, But anyone who saw Spider-Man 3 realized that there was something kind of out of sync with that film, especially coming on the heels of Spider-Man 2, which I think over dinner at Skyline, you and I were both saying, was our favorite Spider-Man movie, I think, until Homecoming came along. Is that correct, Aaron?
1: Yeah. My favorite had been Raimi's Spider-Man 2. I love Doc Ock. I've always loved the Green mm-hmm. Goblin. And the reason Spidey 1 isn't my favorite is because they put Willem Dafoe in a plastic mask. And I think he is so expressive with his face that if they would have just let him be a great, the great actor he is without a mask would have been much more terrifying of a villain. I really love Spider-Man 1, but when Spider-Man 2 came along, I really love Doc Ock, and I really love Alfred Molina. And to put those two together is like my peanut butter and chocolate. Everything about it was great. The fight scene on the train. I could have done a little bit without the, I'm doubting my powers routine they did that in Superman 2, where he gives up his powers to be with Lois Lane. It seems like a typical trope for a second movie is the hero is all of a sudden questioning, should I be a hero? And at one point, Iron Man blows up all of his suits because he just wants to give it all up. It's a very common trope. And it was like, eh, I don't need that. I just want to see Spidey stopping a, a simple robbery, something like that. But overall, out of all my superhero movies, Spidey 2 was number one until Homecoming came out. And that's a whole different ballpark. That was Marvel Spidey versus Sony Spidey.
0: Absolutely. And you're so right about Alpha Molina in that movie. It's such an amazing performance. And the fact that you feel for this version of Doc Ock. It's a legitimately tragic story. And to give him that heroic moment where he gains control again and he shuts everything down, I mean, it's a great movie.
1: I loved it when he talked to his mm-hmm. tentacles. Whenever he talked to his tentacles, that was an aspect I never conceived of in the comics, but they're linked to him and they're, you know, he's talking to him. And I was like, oh, damn, that's cool. And Sam Raimi's a great director and he was a Spider Man fan. So he got Spidey more correct than the Mark Webb, Andrew Garfield, Spidey series. Yeah,
0: in fact, you know, and to get into why we got those, Spidey 3 comes out, the film came in just south of $900 million worldwide. But the problem was that they only had gotten, you factor in how much it cost to make, just a 2% increase in what the profits were. And it just, again, at Sony, this was not enough, we're doing something wrong if you go to the to rotten tomatoes the first film got 89 percent freshness the second film got 96 percent freshness and you look at three it's like
1: 69 well the, i'll tell you the only reason for that is because of the shoehorning in of venom because you've already got a three movie arc culmination of harry osborne's character who becomes the new goblin To replace his father, you've got the Sandman and his arc of redemption. And then all of a sudden, because Sony thinks that Venom's popular and current and hip and cool, they got to throw him in there. And for the fans' point of view, if you're going to do a Venom story, do the Venom story. You don't need another goblin. You don't need Sandman. I think that's part of the reason why now we're just getting a Venom movie. But the fact that it's now disjointed from Spider Man, because Venom gets the suit from Spidey. How is this going to happen if Spidey's in the Marvel universe and Venom is in the Sony universe? There's a bunch of questions about that upcoming movie that I don't know, but I also think it's Sony trying to fix their mistake of yeah, we really screwed up Venom in Spidey Three.
0: I definitely think you're right, but at the same time, when you're looping back to what Sam wanted to try to do is like on the heels of Spider-Man Three. Sony announces that they've got plans now for Spider-Man 4 and Spider-Man 5. And in fact, that they'd shoot this one giant Mm -hmm. movie and then just lop it out for effects work and that sort of thing. And and, I mean, this is the plan as of October uh, 2008. But as they get into 2009, suddenly Sam is like, well, you know, I think we're just going to do four. Sam, who had spent all of his time setting up Kirk Connors, the Dylan Baker character that you saw right. in what is it? You saw in two and three. Yep. So it's like he wanted to bring the lizard in. That that this was a villain that Sam really believed in. Likewise, he's still circling back in the Vulture. In fact, there's there's, there's news in the trades that they're talking with John Malkovich to bring him in to play this character and. With four, Sam wanted to make a Spider-Man movie to make up for Spider-Man 3. You know, for example, right. the opening of the film, you know, he envisioned this montage where you had Spidey battling with Mysterio and the Shocker and the Prowler and the Rhino. All these different battle sequences of the whole time you had the vulture sort of standing back and watching, sort of probing for weakness about how he could go after Peter Parker. To Sony executives, it's like the very thing you said. It's this 80-year-old guy in a ridiculous suit. Who's going to want to see that movie? And so they continue to push back hard just at Sam. And Sam, in the end, is just sort of like, you know, I, don't get me wrong. It's wonderful to be handed hundreds of millions of dollars to make movies. But if you don't believe in the movie you're making, why make it? He announces in January of 2010, I'm stepping it away. Somebody else can make Spider-Man 4. Honestly, this could not have come at a worse time for Sony. Because remember, in August of 2009, like we mentioned at the top of the show, you have Disney announcing that they're acquiring uh, the rights to Marvel. They're going to pay that $4 billion and get that library of 5,000 characters. And the executives at Sony are kind of freaking out because – Their worry is that the right story for Spider Man is so convoluted. Honestly, it would.
1: We'd have to give everybody in the listing audience a whiteboard to follow along. But the nutshell version of it is: back in the '80s, Marvel, as a comic book company, was broke. They were trying to sell off their top tier characters to for someone to make a movie out of it. They got like a two hundred and fifty thousand dollars ish around there, really paltry money for their top tier character, and it sat in development hades for like twenty years until someone could get the rights back to it and then they could make a movie.
0: Absolutely. But here's the thing. It it had gone through so many different court cases and there's so many fights. The worry at Sony was that now that Disney was on board and they could put their Infinite Monkeys version of the Disney legal department on every contract, on every legal decision that had been made about Spider-Man, the fear was that Disney was going to find a loophole and be able to take the character back. And so it was crucial that Sony get a Spider-Man movie in production as quickly as possible, which is where Mark Webb comes in and The Amazing Spider-Man, being the longtime fan that you are, what was your take on The Webb's Amazing Spider-Man?
1: Okay, so the reason they hired Mark Webb was because he had directed 500 Days of Summer, which was a really nice romantic comedy, and I thought that that would be a nice Peter, MJ, or Gwen Stacy. He could handle the relationships, Mm -hmm. So, I had confidence in him in that. The problems I really had were in Sam Raimi's Spider Man, there was some criticism that Spidey wasn't quippy enough. He was a nerd that always got picked on. When he put on the suit, he had confidence. The comic books, he's always talking trash to the villains. And you really didn't get that in Raimi's Spider Man. So, in Web, they tried to incorporate it, but they did it. Inappropriately, They made, instead of him, a fun wisecracker, he made him a bit of a jerk. Telling the cops, hey, I did your job for you, you should be thanking me, is not how Spider-Man treats authority figures. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then what really, really upset me is such a small thing about character is at the end of the movie, all of the crane operators have to put their cranes in a row so Spider-Man can swing to the building at the end and save the day. Now here's one thing Spider-Man has never ever in his life had a problem with is traversing the city of New York without the help of crane <laughs> operators. He's got webbing, he's got many, many buildings that are very, very tall, he can swing from them, he's never once needed 20 crane operators to coordinate a pathway for him to get around New York City. And I was like, okay, if you guys can mess up that bad, such a simple thing about this character, and I watched both of The Amazings, And the fact that they tried to cram in story elements about his parents who, in the history of the comic books, nobody's cared about Peter's parents ever. Even when they did a very small arc about Peter's parents coming back and it turned out to be a trick. It was like one of the lowest selling arcs they had in a while. Nobody ever cares about Peter's parents. Peter has guilt about Uncle Ben, he's got to get heart medication for Aunt May, and a villain is trying to blow up New York, and he's got to ride his guilt from Uncle Ben's death to both get the heart medication and save the city all at the same time. That's kind of the spirit of Spidey, and they they just missed it on many levels. But they did get the romance between Gwen Stacy and Peter. That was fine. There were good elements. I liked Andrew Garfield as Peter. Hated him as Spider-Man.
0: Okay, okay. And strictly from a a box office point of view, if you looked at, they produced this film for $230 million, which is a step down from the 250 plus that they did for Spider-Man 3. So that made them happy, the studio. The problem was that this film made, and again, it's, it's always strange for me to, have to use the phrase only when you say a number like $757 million, because if someone were to only right. give me that money, I would bear up. I would somehow struggle with this
1: burden. Right. Yeah, 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 But
0: from a studio point of view, that's $140 million less from the Sam Raimi movie. So it's like, okay, regroup. We're doing something wrong here. So here comes Amazing Spider-Man 2. Now the budget's crept up to $255 million. And it makes less money. I think you know what's interesting is you know, when you look at people talking about the movie now, they talk about how it's kind of a mess. There's too much stuff crammed into it, like the decision to put at Oscorp all of those hints about the Sinister Six. Here we're right. going to set up this jumping
1: off point film. Well, I'll tell you, because mm-hmm. I'm a geek and I do yep. geeky stuff because mm-hmm. I'm a geek, I edited – Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, and I got rid of everything that had to do with the family. Really? All of that mystery that never gets resolved in either movie. Because, look, the point of a movie is to tell a complete story. You know, when Marvel salt and peppers in a detail, they don't spend a 10-minute scene for that detail. It's a a throwaway mention that some people will get, it'll make sense in another movie later on, whatever. But it's not a a 10-minute scene. And if you cut out all of these things that are not essential to the actual Spider-Man story being told today right now, it becomes a much more watchable movie because the content that's there is all of a sudden only relevant. It's all filler that can easily be cut and make the overall movie experience much more enjoyable to watch. Now salting and peppering in Sinister Six stuff, I'm okay with that as a fan because I would love to see Spidey versus the Sinister Six. And again, that was more of a throwaway. They show a guy walking through uh, the lab at the end and you see the tentacles and the wings and whatnot. That wasn't a five minute dedicated, you know, that was a couple of seconds. So That's how I view those differences, as a throwaway salt and pepper versus five to ten minutes dedicated to something that has absolutely nothing to do with this movie right now. So The
0: Amazing Spider-Man 2 comes out. As movie studios do these days, they've already planted a flag for the release date of both Amazing Spider-Man 3 and The Amazing Spider-Man 4. We've got... June 2016 for The Amazing Spider-Man 3 and then May of 2018 for The Amazing Spider-Man 4. But looking at the box office and that sort of thing, there's a change of thinking within Sony. And then there's an announcement that not only are they dropping the release date for Spider-Man 3, the June 2016 date, but they announce in November of that same year, now they're going to do their Sinister Six movie. There's one version of this where it literally is the Sinister Six. You know, this was going to be Andrew Garfield. This was going to be, you know, these characters
1: battling Spidey. Well, okay, Sony had always wanted to lead up to a Sinister Six because you had evidence of that in Amazing 1 and 2. I think that the mentality difference here is that the Marvel Universe is all connected with all these different movies, and Sony can't get into that. It's a locked door to them. But Spider-Man has an amazing rogues gallery, and the Sinister Six is a very widely loved concept. Even though the roster changes from time to time, the Sinister Six is always an event. So they say, well, if we can't have a huge, expansive Marvel universe, let's have a large, expansive Spidey universe that's where they want to tell the story about the parents and that's going to happen over three or four movies. And then we're going to lead up to the sinister six will be the big climax. And they're just trying to create an overstuffed universe so they can fill it out the way that Marvel has. But Marvel's got 20 characters that they can mm-hmm. alter the flavoring of the movie, whereas Spider-Man is is Spider-Man, and now it just feels overstuffed with garbage that's not going to pay off for another five or six years when these next two movies may come out.
0: It, it's so funny you bring up that point, because one of the ways they also wanted to expand out the universe that Sony hack, a lot of the memos that from this period about when they were looking to expand the universe got out. And during this time, they quite seriously were exploring the idea of a Spider-Gwen movie. Yeah. In addition to, again, the Venom project. I think you're the first one who's actually pointed that out to me, that we don't need the rest of the Marvel characters. We can just bump out the Spidey universe into all these different characters. And again, for a time, uh, Six was such a go. I mean, for example... I remember Paul Giamatti doing interviews and talking about, yeah, I'm going back to do the third one. I wish.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I wish. It was so good.
0: So we have our Sony hack. And what was fascinating about the Sony hack is we actually learned how Spider-Man really did get into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And basically, it was Marvel that reached out to Sony that saw them flailing with Spider-Man and said, look, mm-hmm. look, 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 hey, let us do Spider-Man. We clearly know how to make these movies. Let's reboot again. I realize you've just rebooted, but let's reboot again and we'll introduce him in Civil War. Sony initially kind of got upset. They felt like Marvel was overreaching, like, hey, come on, we know what we're doing. And then, of course, with the hack and all of the bad press they got, Sony actually suddenly felt very vulnerable and felt like, look, we really need to get a hit on the board. We really need to turn this around. And so they actually turned around and went back to Marvel and said, okay, is, is that offer still on the table? And yes, we'd, we'd love for you to do this. That's how we wound up with that wonderful homecoming, which both from the reviews and the film itself, I mean, just with Captain America Civil War, it was such a wonderful introduction. It was.
1: Ruse. Okay, get in here. Here's one thing. Uh, A very simple thing I was thrilled about for Marvel's restraint is that not once has Uncle Ben or his death been mentioned by name. We've seen it in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. We've seen the ghost of Uncle Ben come back in Spider-Man 2 to give advice from beyond the grave. Andrew Garfield had a different Uncle Ben to get killed off. And when we get to Civil War Homecoming and Tony's talking to Peter, and Peter can't mention Uncle Ben by name, and he gets a little bit choked up, this 43-year-old fanboy nearly needed a box of tissues. And they didn't have to get into all the hows and the whys. The fans know. We've seen the story. It's like, how many times have you seen Batman's parents get killed on film? We know how he got his start. We don't need to rehash that again. So I was very, very happy that Marvel has not touched Uncle Ben in any way, shape, or form because we know it it exists.
0: But that's the touch of a confident filmmaker. Yeah, it is. In fact, I, I remember talking once with Pete Doctor about Monsters Inc., and one of the things I love about that movie is the end, where Sully goes back into Boo's bedroom after they've reconstructed the door and Any other filmmaker on the planet, when he reunites with that little girl, they would have, she would have run into his arms and the camera would have spun around them and there would have been a big music thing. And it's like, no, I don't need to do that. You just need to see his face. Yeah. That's enough and we can end right there. And the very notion of, you know, the impact that Uncle Ben's death has had on both Peter and May. We don't have to go back to that. You know that. Um, Again, I love that they were that confident and that assured that they could do that. And also the fact that Marvel knew that the Vulture was a legitimately great villain, that they could look past the 80-year-old in the suit from the comic and it's like, no, that if we get a Michael Keaton in here to play this role and there's lots of layers and there's, there's conflicts and that
1: sort of thing, that this could be killer. Let's step back for a second and just say, Marvel has done an exceptional job with all of their casting from top to bottom. I mean, even to a simple role like Agent Coulson, who made a a two minutes worth of an appearance in Iron Man and everybody in the audience loved him. And all of a sudden, boom, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is a TV show. I mean, that didn't happen till Avengers, but they kept Agent Coulson in for the Thor movie. He was always there when they first announced
0: Iron Man. And it was Robert Downey Jr. Tell the truth. (laughs) What did you think?
1: it got me very excited. I couldn't imagine someone better than Robert Downey Jr. Because, look, he had a a substance abuse problem. That's a part of his life from his his past. Iron Man in the comic books had a substance abuse problem. And we've kind of been hoping, as fans, will we ever see a demon-in-the-bottle storyline. And in the movies, Stark does still consume alcohol, but not to an extent of Mm -hmm. drunken sloppiness. Marvel's keeping the tone light, playful, and squeaky clean, and I don't think we can have uh, Arthur on the rocks, too, in an Iron Man suit, although I think it would be damn funny.
0: (laughs) No, and and I love that transition, Aaron, because that brings us to why we're getting the Venom we're now getting, the one that's just begun production with, with Tom Hardy. How long did Ryan Reynolds try to get his take on Deadpool up out of the ground.
1: But he did his little short film demonstration with his buddies and he did a mm-hmm. proof of concept and the fans clamored and begged and screamed from the top of the mountains. That's mm-hmm. the, the power of the geek. And the studio heard it and went, all right, we'll give you a shot.
0: Yeah, but but again, remember, remember they gave him a shot, but not a budget. That's right. And it still looked fantastic. The original Iron Man, and we're talking shot in 2007, that movie cost $140 million to make. Deadpool
1: was $58 million total. Now, the director of Deadpool's background was in special effects. Oh. And he had his company do it on the cheap Mm. cheap because he wanted the movie made. And more to the point, when you have an effects
0: guy on a film like this, you don't end up with elaborate scenes on the cutting room floor.
1: This is a guy who is like, you know, this is exactly what I need. (laughs) They think in layers and work parts. I need a shot of the hero against the green screen. Then the Mm -hmm. background's going to be superimposed with this. And you think in layers of layer them like Photoshop on top of each other. And yeah, they think differently about how they capture things. Because as a special effects creator, how many times do they get a shot from a director who who knows nothing about special effects? And they go, oh, Jesus, this is going to be a nightmare. And so they learn by other directors' failures of, oh, if they only would have done this, it would have made my job so much easier so when they get in the director's chair all they can think about is capturing the elements the best way possible for the effects guys to really put it together and look gorgeous true but again this is ryan's take on deadpool so
0: it's a hard r and it manages to make three quarters of a billion dollars and so fox which has been doing good solid work with the x-men They've had Wolverine, they've had Logan, this brutal character, but they've always had to keep him in kind of that PG, PG PG-13 box.
1: Anytime Logan kills anybody in any X-Men movie, there is no blood on his claws Mm -hmm. until you get to the Logan movie, which is R, and all of a sudden there's blood everywhere when he kills someone.
0: There you go. And in fact, it's so funny that this one, a bit pricier than Deadpool, it was $97 to produce, but same thing. It it makes over $600 million. So Mm -hmm. clearly a profit, clearly identifies that there is in fact an audience out there for R-rated material based on the Marvel characters. So now here we are at Venom, and the people who are working on it have flat out admitted, look, this is a horror movie. In fact, the release date... October 5th, 2018 kind of underlined circles and indents that we're bringing this movie to the marketplace at that time because this is the Marvel movie that's going to scare the crap out of you.
1: Now, I wonder how, like, people perceive a horror movie as, you know, ghosts and jump scares and things like that, but considering the movies being called Venom Carnage, and we're expecting Carnage to be the bad guy and then Venom, therefore, to be the good guy. Carnage is all about slaughtering innocents. So I, I'm wondering if it's going to be spooky horror or physical violence horror. There's going to be a lot of blood splashing, but are they saying horror in those words or just graphic? Well,
0: see, the problem is right now they have literally just started production, though... Uh Andy Circus, he was talking about what he finds fascinating about this project is that Tom Hardy, just like Gollum, this is going to be a totally CG motion capture character. Well, it has to be. Yeah. Again, knowing that and knowing that they're looking to do the hard art, this is going to be fascinating to see what they do. But at the same time, to come back to your wonderful Andy Pascal Kevin Feige story, you, you can kind of understand why Kevin's like, well... Yeah, we love Tom Holland. And yes, you know, we can't wait to have him come into the next Avengers movie. In fact, I guess I should mention that at the D23 Expo, they actually ran the teaser reel, which I'm hoping out ahead of of Thor Ragnarok that we they finally walk this thing out. These are real for what? For uh, Infinity Wars.
1: Oh, okay. okay.
0: And they had this wonderful moment where it's Peter Parker on a school bus, but the camera goes close in on his arm, and you see the hairs go up. They get you know, the spidey sense goes yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. And you get this face on Peter Parker, like, what the hell's going on? Right. The footage showed Spider Man right in the thick of the battle when they're going head to head. And just cannot wait for this movie and to see him there. In the mix.
1: Well, Spidey has been part of the Avengers team from time to time, but Mm -hmm. remembering that Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Hemsworth and Chris Evans' contracts are all about up, Mm -hmm. is Marvel going to bring dump trucks full of money to each of their doors to get them to sign on after uh, the Avengers series? Are these characters going to get killed off? Are they going to disappear? I mean, honestly, from the Infinity Gauntlet, they could all die in Infinity Gauntlet 1 mm-hmm. and then be resurrected by the Infinity Gauntlet if it's wielded by a hero in the second one. So they could get killed off. They could come back. I'm wondering how contract negotiations are going to go to keep them in these roles for the rest of their natural lives.
0: There have been some interesting stories about Chris Evans maybe looking to step away, and which, of course, would play in nicely to the whole Bucky story. And I mean, that's the other thing I think what I've been enjoying about the way Marvel Studios operates is they really do pick and choose in interesting ways. They treat sort of the Marvel, all of the wonderful stories that Marvel's told over the years kind of like a buffet. I mean, when you look at, for example, what they're doing with Ragnarok and how that really kind of samples Planet Hulk. Right. You don't necessarily get everything from that, but you do get Hulk in an arena and going head-to-head with Thor and, you know, how fun that is.
1: Recent news update on that. Mm-hmm. So we'll cover the, the basics real quick. Universal has the rights to any movie with the word Hulk in it. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to get a main Hulk movie inside of the Marvel Universe by Universal. So what they've done is they've put Planet Hulk into Thor Ragnarok so we can still get that out of the Hulk. But Mark Ruffalo said that he just recently had a conversation that Hulk is going to have a story arc over the next three movies that will be not quite Hulk movies. They'll still be team-ups of sorts, but the Hulk is going to have a much more interesting character development over those three movies where he'll be kind of an anchor at the center of it all.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. And speaking of which, though, what's been kind of interesting is we've had James Gunn, who's supposedly he's just submitted the first 70-page treatment for Guardians 3 and is just kind of prepping folks for the notion of, well, look, this ends this iteration of the Guardians, that they're going to go out with a bang. But more to the point, you have people like Feige talking about With the last Infinity, well, again, that's the thing. The the film will be out April 27, 2018. That one's going to be called Infinity Wars. They're saying now that the next one, which will, the second part of the story, which will hit on April 26, 2019, will not be called Infinity Wars 2, or to that effect. It'll have a different title. But that will be the last part of Phase 3. And Feige is already warning folks, because people are like, oh, what's in Phase 4? And it's like, Well, you know, maybe we're not going to be talking in phases at that point. What's kind of intriguing for me is that you've got Guardians 3 is going to drop on May 1st, 2020. But before that, we've got Spider-Man 2, July 5th, 2019. And it's going to be interesting to see which Peter we get at that point. This is Peter who's gone through the Infinity Wars, who's been stood with the the Avengers and did this epic battle over the Infinity Gauntlet right I don't know if we can put him in the same high school spot that he was previously
1: Actually, I'll tell you, when Marvel Comics relaunched their universe and did the Ultimate series, they basically got to take 40 years of Spider-Man history and cherry pick the very best stories and retell them in fresh new ways. And it was a great read as a fan to kind of revisit things, but have new twists and turns develop. Flash has always been a big bully, as my one critique of Spider-Man Homecoming is I don't see Flash being a mental, challenging Peter in any way. Peter's much brighter than Flash. That's why Flash was always a big muscle head. He was always dumb, but he could always beat up Peter. So when they redid this in the Ultimate series, Peter gets his powers, and he knows darn well that he could beat the snot out of Flash if he wants to. But his spider sense is tingling. He knows Flash is about to pound him into his locker, and he just has to accept it because that's what Peter gets, not Spider-Man. And you kind of have to see him go through forced humiliation during this process of trying to play the same geek in high school when he knows inside that he could take down the biggest of the baddest. And that's an interesting dynamic of who Peter is on the outside of modest and polite and brilliant. And then when he gets into his costume, he's a bit more arrogant, but he's funny and he's quippy while he's Mm -hmm. being self-confident. So, they could be doing him in his sophomore, junior, or senior years, and I think that they can play with that dynamic. Also, the way that they ended Spider-Man 1 with uh, Aunt May saying, what the? And then we cut to credits. Mm -hmm. That's desperately going to change the home dynamic as well. And so we're going to get a constantly worried Aunt May about, oh, don't go get that bad guy. Or, you know, maybe you should try using this web shooter instead of that web shooter, trying to give him tips or something. So they've got a lot to play with. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. He is supposed to still be in high school. He'll probably have a crush or something and a bad guy and Aunt May riding his butt the whole way.
0: (laughs) And I guess to sort of pivot to understanding that the, the topics here we talked about, this is the Disney version of Marvel, and so because of their associated with Disney, Marvel can be in some very interesting spaces now, and and one of the spaces they've just stepped into this summer. Is the Marvel superhero adventures where it's ironic we're talking about the hard R Marvel films, the Deadpools, the Logans, and and now Venom. And this is the exact opposite. Well, How wait a it... minute. Those yeah. those
1: aren't Marvel movies. That was you know, Logan's Fox, Deadpool is Fox. There we go. There that's we not go. that's not Disney. But there is hard R Disney Marvel appearing on Netflix by way of Daredevil and Punisher is going to be coming out and he's going to be very, very bloody when his show starts. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Marvel does have a a place for their dark stuff, but films tend to be lighter. And then of course, cartoons to get the kids hooked early.
0: Well, but see, that's the thing that this next set of things, the Marvel superhero adventures, this is entry-level Marvel you know these yep. are three to three and a half minute long animated shorts designed to be shown on Disney jr and the Disney now platform and uh, what is it the Marvel headquarters the their YouTube channel
1: mm-hmm.
0: so what I love about it is it's the heroin business plan it's the first taste is free yep
1: after that, you got to pay for
0: it. Yeah, and then it's like, well, you got to go to the theaters and see Infinity Wars and all that. So right. uh, speaking of movies, that given how much we've covered here today, folks, but there is so much more to talk about. So just to tease our next show, by the next time Aaron and I sit down to do another Marvel Us Disney show, Thor Ragnarok will have hit, so we'll share our thoughts on that. Likewise, the both of us have been watching Inhumans on ABC. And trust me, we'll we'll have some stuff to say about that, too. I'm kind of hoping this one pays off. We'll get to that on our next show. Anyway, folks, uh, this has been the first installment, we hope of, of many, of Marvel Us Disney. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. And if there's any films or TV shows or parts of the, the, the history you'd like us to talk about, please let us know. Again, this is Jim Hill and... Aaron Adams. And we will talk with you folks again soon. Till then, take care.